the last couple of times we met, we went over some basics about prophecy and we established a baseline for what prophecy really is. It's not just prediction. We established a baseline that prophecy is a great number of things and it's largely ignored. And it's ironic, especially today. Prophecy is intended for many, many functions. A major, major prophecy. I mean, one of the, more, one of the most important prophecies to try to gauge where we are in God's timeline is Israel being restored back into her land in May of 1948. We talked about this where God timed it, and I proved it to you because a scientific study was done on stalactites. The University of, of Wisconsin-Madison a couple of years ago did a, a scientific study of stalactites. And some of you in this class have already heard this. I want to make this clear because Latter-day prophecy hinges on this one thing which has been fulfilled to show you how God did it when he kicked Israel out of the promised land. Almost analogous, almost analogous to when he kicked Adam and Eve out of paradise. It's not the same, it's not prophetically the same, but you can see God's operation, how he deals with people. I have promised you this land, and if you do not do what I say, you enter a covenant with me, and I give you this because I said I'll do this, and you said you'll do that. If you keep on not doing that, I'm going to have to punish you, and one of those things is to take away some of the blessing, or a major blessing, of what I said I'd give you. But he has not left them orphans, and he always said that. So the study of these stalactites really showed that when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, remember Jesus has, had predicted the temple would be destroyed, and it was, and then not too long after that, Israel was routed out of the land. Had anybody else ever settled in that land for any length of time? The answer is no, they tried. Remember we, we see in scripture, it was always said it was a land flowing with milk and honey and yet it's all desert. So I never understood that until I understood what God meant. The study from the University of Wisconsin on the stalactite showed that just at around the time, quote unquote coincidentally, that the Jews were kicked out of, the Israel was kicked out of that land, it stopped raining. And it became more and more of a desert. And it stayed that way until just around World War I. And at the time, you had the Plymouth Brethren, and they were starting to look at prophecy from the standpoint of Israel being a key to it. See, a lot of the things that had been lost, and it was coming back, because God was preparing that land for a people. And at just that time, the Balfour Declaration came into being and all that stuff, and guess what happened? It started to rain again in the Holy Land. Isn't that amazing? The land was prepared for a people. And then we had the UN decree they made up where it was Transjordan, which became Jordan, and they were going to have a, a home for the Jewish people. And that was mainly because there was one Jewish scientist who helped Britain in the war, in World War I. They were running out of the, uh, ways to make explosives, and he found a way of making synthetic acetone. And they loved him so much that they asked him, do you ask us anything, and we'll do it for you. And he said, I, I want you to promise to give us a homeland. England was still expanding their empire, and they were now into the Holy Land area. So that's when they decided to give the Jews a break, and give them their place as God was preparing that land. Isn't that coincidental? So this is how prophecy ties together for them. And then World War II prepared a people for that land. So this is, a, this is just one. We're going to go into a little more of it, how that prophecy worked. And that has been fulfilled. And Jesus said, the generation that sees the olive tree blossom. He said to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you know that when you see these things happen, certain things happen, that the summer is near. But yet you refuse to see, refuse 
And that's what Jesus' problem. You know, if there's ignorance, that can be fixed. But if there's willful ignorance, I'm sorry, it cannot be fixed. And that's what Jesus was angry about. And that's what this is all about. Anybody who has eyes, and you know, this is the whole point, and that's one of the reasons why in this class I tell you we are here not just to study the depths of Scripture. We are here to be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within us, and it's just Jesus Christ. But that's the foundation. If we know nothing above that, what good are we? You can walk around to a Panera or a Starbucks or at your work and you can say, do you know the Lord? People are going to say, get out of here, right? I was one of them before I was saved. But give me, meet me where I am. Meet me in my fear. Meet me in my personal consternation. Give me some hope. Tell me about your experiences. Tell me about your life and, and what this Jesus has done for you. And then you'll have me. That's what it's all about. So prophecy is the same thing. When the other shoe drops, and there are more, and my point was, there are more people who are not Christian who are waiting for the other shoe to drop now, more than ever before. And yet there are so many Christians who walk around as if nothing's going to happen. Ever since our fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they are. You see what I'm saying? And you see I'm passionate about it. I'm a passionate person anyway. But this is where the rubber meets the road, folks, and this is what we're here to learn about. So that's why prophecy is important. Especially now, we are that generation. So some basic precepts on prophecy. You are and I am to interpret prophecy literally wherever we can. It's not all heuristics. It's not all in the nebula. People like to, like to think that way. And I think a lot of times because they love mystery. But if you notice, a lot of times when the Holy Spirit gives anybody, in the, especially in the New Testament, we hear more about mysteries in the New Testament, especially like mystery, Babylon the Great, and the mystery of this. It's not really a mystery to us. That's the point. It's a mystery to others, and the mystery is sometimes what they're trying to tell you. You really need to understand the depths. Like we, told, we, we know that it says that sometimes Paul, some of the things he said were hard to understand, right? That's what it says. But it doesn't mean that you're not supposed to understand them. But the Bible also warns that no scriptures should be, ever be subject to private interpretation. So how do you know? That's where you have to find out that the Holy Spirit has to lead you. So there are no mysteries for us. That's why we're told to watch. That's why these things are here. Take it literally wherever possible. And the only way you're going to know is to study the Bible. <laughs> I had to learn that myself. You know, if I let someone else teach me the Bible all the time, I will never grow. I'll stop and I'll think I'm doing good. You know, I didn't know how bad I was doing until I started actually studying this on my own. And that's what gave me the impetus to really study deeply. Okay. There's a lot of fairy tales out there, folks. A lot of fairy tales. Prophecies concerning Israel and the church must never be transposed. Now, I mentioned that last time in this class. There are specific promises for Israel, right? There are specific promises for the church. And yet there are many Christians who believe that all the... Matter of fact, there are songs that say, all the promises of God are mine. Uh, no, they're not. So understand the difference Israel is still the chosen people of God, but they're in a different rank. The church is here for a time. We are in a different rank. And not only that, but think of this, that during the tribulation, will the church be here? The answer is unequivocally no. I'm sorry if you don't believe that. Prove it to yourself. The church will not be here. But there will be people saved in that time frame. And when all is said and done, they are not part of this church, even though they are believers, because they were not part of the job of the chosen people during this 2,000 years that Daniel predicted when Messiah would come, but didn't really understand it was the church age because it was a mystery in the Old Testament. That makes sense? 
So never confuse Israel with the church, but never, and this is even more important, detach Israel from your understanding of the Bible and of prophecy. Okay? A final point here, and this is the final point in the introduction, because now we're actually going to get into some meat here. Prophecy must always be viewed from the standpoint, and you already know this, I'm just making sure we understand, if, if you do this in a vacuum just because there's hype and you want to find out what's going to happen at the end, you'll learn some things. But you'll never learn the depths of prophecy until you and I really always look at it this way, that it is all points like the menorah design. Remember the menorah? Anybody know what the menorah is? You have the center lamp in the menorah, which is higher than the others. And all of the lamps in the original one were little oil lamps, right? They look like these little genie lamps, you know? You know? Okay, no superstition here. But they were look like that. And they had a wick at the top, at the spout, and they had a little pot for oil. But where the wicks were, from the front of the uh, little lamp, they all pointed toward the Shemesh, or Shemash, I think it's called Shemesh. Forgive my Hebrew. They pointed to what is called the servant lamp. And if you look at the design of the holy days that God gave, not just to Israel, there are appointed times for all of us to understand. Okay. There's a menorah design. You have the, the three spring holy days, you have the three fall holy days, and Pentecost right smack in the middle. How about Jesus Christ as the servant? And all things point to him. So we look at prophecy, we look at the scriptures, and there's this menorah design all again. The point is that if you look at prophecy, think of it in the menorah design over and over and over again. The focal point of this thing called time, which is for us a timeline, in eternity time does not exist the way it does here. We've been through this ad nauseum. But in this timeline that we are locked into, the fulcrum of time, because scripture puts it at just the right time, at just the right time in this thing called time that we are experiencing here and locked into, Jesus came and he died and rose again. Well, what does that mean at just the right time? Well, the only way you're going to know at just the right time is if you understand what prophecy is all about. And if you look at the menorah design, you can understand God's heart, his mind, and his character and his point of view. In God's design, everything has a central focus. Any topic you look at, and there are things that support that, and it's the menorah design. So whatever topic you're looking at, and by the way, the New Testament itself, if you look at the subject of the books, are laid out in menorah design. I'm not going to get into that now. But the point is, is that everything points to Jesus Christ. So when I say, and I want you to hear this right, and I know you do because you're here and you believe this. When I say that Jesus Christ is just the beginning, the foundation, that does not denigrate his position because without him none of it would exist. Nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense. But what I'm saying is, is if you and I are trapped into just Jesus Christ and him crucified, praising the Lord, praising the Lord, you're going to go home and God is going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. However, I gave you this many talents and you didn't use them. All you did was bury him in Christ under his wing. You see what I'm saying? That's the point. The prophecy points to Jesus Christ. And we're going to see some of that. Matter of fact, you already know some of that from Genesis. The very first prophecy was right after the fall when the seed of the woman will produce someone. His heel will be bruised by the serpent, but he will cause a mortal wound to the head of the serpent. That's the prophecy that ripples through the whole Bible, right? And all of it points to that. So, there's a well-known law 
It's called the law of proportion. Anybody hear the law of proportion? The law of proportion, it's like the law of averages. If you look at the way it functions, it typically does not fail. And so what I'm, what I'm talking about is, let's say there's something composed of, whatever it is, it's composed of many different things. But the more as you study or as you look at it or as it makes itself come to the fore, whatever, we're talk, whatever subject you're talking about, there's usually one or two things in the subject that keep on popping up as the most prominent. Like we talk about the human body, let's say, and you, you start, well, what keeps someone alive? Well, there's many things that have to happen to keep your body alive. But in every time you'll start thinking about blood, you know, or the heart, or more than just enzymes and proteins or the DNA. What I'm saying is, is that the law of proportion dictates that it's the most important things, although not the only things, usually rise to, this, rise to the surface in prominence in the, in the equation of what you're studying. That may sound kind of abstract, but what I'm getting at is if you look at scripture, in a holistic sense. There's a lot of things in Scripture, not just prophecy, a lot of things. But if you look at the law of proportion, let's see how much prophecy is represented in Scripture, and it'll give you an idea of how important prophecy is to God's Word. Does that make sense? I guess it's a roundabout way of trying to say something very easy. But look at life. You'll find that in life. That no matter what it is you study, there are going to be one or two things that always rise to the surface as the key focal point of whatever the subject is. And so let's look at this, okay? And I have a few things here. When the notes come online, you'll read them. But I'm just going to go through a couple of them here. The percentage of the Old Testament, now this is technical. This has been studied by scholars, and I think it's, it's, it's on the low side, because I, I, I look at other things. Like if you were in this class when we were studying the prophecy, uh, the, sorry, the book of Psalms, there's a lot of prophecy in the book of Psalms that if you don't watch yourself, you don't count as prophecy. As a matter of fact, I want to read you from the book of Hosea today. Something that's so stark, it slaps you in the face, and you could miss it if you're not really looking for it. But in general, they say that the percentage of the Old Testament, out of the whole book of books of the Old Testament, all of them, 28.5% is sheer prophecy. Again, I would venture to say that that's on the low side if you look at the more intricate details of, of the threat of prophecy. And in the New Testament, it's 21.5%. So I see a couple of things here. There's a little more detail, like I said. But prophecy takes up between 20 and 30% of everything in Scripture. It's not even like it's 5% or 10%. And if you look at the law of proportion, and you know that, how much do we concentrate on prophecy in general as Christians? How much do we hear anything about it? It's sort of like the subjects of sin and hell. I'm sorry, I don't hear a lot about sin and hell these days. I don't hear a lot about it. I hear a lot about people coming to Christ and being seeker-friendly in general, right? You look at Christianity wherever you go. It's a very sweet message. But it doesn't help people keep them on the right track because there is a hell to be shunned. There is a retribution and people are going to fall into the hands of an angry God. And in Scripture, even the prophets ask, when are you going to come? Even in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, when those tribulation saints are sacrificed and beheaded in the New Testament, and they're up under the altar, and they're saying, how long before you give retribution? And what does God say? Judgment is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. So if you look at sin and hell, I wonder, I don't have the figures here, but if you look at the law of proportion, how much does Bible, the Bible talk about sin and hell? A lot. I'd say at least as much as prophecy, and I'm sure it's more. But we don't hear a lot about it. Why? Well, we're going to talk about why. So we've defined what basically prophecy is. Why is prophecy now totally, almost totally ignored by many people? 
And in general, I'm going to say in general, I'm not saying any particular organization, but prophecy is given a bad rap and is ignored. And there's some reasons for it. I want you to think about it by many leaders in the church and the world. Now more than ever, most secular and many Christians want to know. And this is the point. As the world is coming to this climax, how many people do you know in general where you work, where you go to school, whatever, are waiting for something to happen? Now more than ever. When I remember growing up in New York City in the 70s, I didn't look for the end. I remember back in the 70s when everybody wanted you to be scared about nuclear war. Oh, everybody, you're going to drop the big one. You're going to drop. But it wasn't really like, who cared? You know, who cared? They tried to get you scared. And then there were the scared of AIDS and the scares of all these epidemics and, and the bird flu as we, as we moved through the 90s and 80s and 90s and today. And it sounds like a hits radio station. 80s and 90s and today. All of the epidemics that are coming, right? Out of all of it, did you walk around scared most of your life or even concerned about it? No. And not that you should now as a Christian, but I'm just saying in general, how many people do you see around you now that are really walking around in fear, especially with all of the weird weather patterns, the massive birth deaths? I mean, the more people know about what's going on around them, and not many people do. So some people are just ignorantly blissful. But there are people who are not even looking for it, but they find it because they just watch, right? I mean, even the earthquake we had here in Maine back in um, October, we were just talking about last night. It's like, how many people are feeling an earthquake in Maine? You know, and it shook people. I don't think it woke many people up because they just felt it once and they go away. But how about these people who experience things they've never experienced before? Zombie there are attacks. Zombie attacks, that's right. Yeah, many people chewing the faces off of people and they find that there's no drugs in their system. It's weird. But people are watching these things. Why aren't we talking about it as a church? We're supposed to help people understand. We have the keys to it here. That's why we are to be ready to give an answer. So let's talk about this. This ignorance of prophecy leads to a condition which gives the ability for people to inject falseness. You know, nature abhors a vacuum. That's why I don't use one. I make my wife use it. <laughs> it's natural for me not to vacuum, Si. You know? But anyway, I digress. So anyway, nature <laughs> abhors a vacuum. And you know what? If something good does not, is not available to fill the void, guess what's going to be injected into it? And that's why you have all these people who are prophecy nuts. There are people who have no business even speaking a word of God because they are not Christian. They have no business even opening that book and handling something as precious and powerful as that two-edged sword. But they don't look at it that way. And unfortunately, many Christians don't look at the Bible that way. There are still Christians who don't believe the Bible is 100% true. They just don't, can't really, they, they get the Jesus stuff, you know. They get the New Testament lifestyle stuff. But they don't care about the Old Testament because it doesn't mean anything to them. Right? I'm not saying anybody here. I'm just saying in general, and you know what I'm talking about because you bump into people like this all the time. I do. Maybe I gravitate toward me. I don't know. But anyway, but there are more people today who want to know the truth of God. But what is said about warnings from Scripture about their ignorance of prophecy, this willful ignorance, and allowing then also to allow, which we're supposed to guard the word of, of God, right? We're supposed to hold it in our hearts and guard it in our hearts, but I think we're also here to defend the Word of God when people work against it. So we're allowing the infiltration of falseness. You know, I'd rather know nothing than something false. So for me, that's not so hard because some people say I know nothing, so you know, it's better for me, I guess. But I'd rather know nothing. There was a joke, everybody. Are you getting too serious? Yeah, that's all right. Well, it's not my usual laughers aren't in the class today. They took the day off. They're laughing on their own. <laughs> but Satan is very shrewd. Satan is very shrewd, and you know that. 
But what we really never really quantify sometimes is just how shrewd he is. How shrewd he is. So this is it. If you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read you some scriptures. I'm going to run through them so you may not be able to turn there fast enough. I'm going to put together some scriptures from the Psalms, from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, and Revelation. I'm going to tie them together. And what we're going to see is this, this little smorgasbord of scripture. We're going to start in, in the Psalms, uh, chapter 4 and verse 2. But I'm going to read through, so you're not going to be able to flip through these pages. But I want you to think as you hear this, Remember, I'm tying together different snippets of Scripture from different places in Scripture, which means that they're also from different time spans. And yet, listen to how well they fit together to give you the idea of how important this is to God about delusion and about leaving a vacuum of truth so that infiltration of falseness can come in. Okay. I'm going to start in in Psalms uh, chapter 4 and verse 2, and I'm going to read, just read them all together as if they were one Scripture. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? That sounds like a willful thing, doesn't it? It's not just ignoring God when we ignore the truth and we start believing a lie. It's turning his glory into shame. How long will you love delusions and seek, purposeful, intentional, seek false gods, Selah, which means just pause and calmly think of that. Think about this. Think about it. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, the Lord will hear when I call to him. Who may ascend to the holy hill or to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who? Oh, here's the answer. Good question, David. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. You can have neither of those if you believe a lie, folks. You know, clean hands doesn't mean that I don't steal, right? Clean hand doesn't mean that I don't commit adultery with my hands by touching another woman, or touching pornography, or anything else, right? Drugs, whatever it is. That, that's part of it. That's a major part of it. But clean hands also means that I grab for what is going to clean them. If I ignore that, you know, it's not just ceasing and desisting from something to keep your hands clean. It's being out there. Because if you do not use soap to clean your hands, and you use something else, you're not going to have clean hands. What he's saying here, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, You can have a pure heart by having nothing bad in it because we know that's not possible for human beings. But think of this, like with the clean hands. You can have clean hands by not touching anything that's unclean, and that's like a law for Israel. Do not touch the unclean things. Sanctify your heart toward me, which means by keeping stuff out of it. Okay, that's good. But it also negates the other half of the equation, which is reach out and get something to clean your hands. Reach out and get something to purify your heart. You see what I'm saying? It's like Isaiah. When God said, who will go for us? And he said, I will. And what had to happen? He said, I am a man of unclean lips. Because he couldn't stop himself from speaking blasphemies like we all do or whatever he did, right? So an angel had to take a hot burning coal and touch his lips with it. It had to be injected. See, that coal was not just to clean his lips. I believe that coal was the word of God that prepared his lips to receive, to be able to speak the words of God. So you purify something, and then you put something good in it. You just don't purify it and leave it open, because it's going to get dirty again. This is my point. There's two sides of this equation, and I believe that's what he's saying here. He who has a clean hands and a pure heart, he who does not lift up his soul to an idol. There are people who idolize prophecy. They live every day. They can't wait to find out what's going on, because they, they want to know what they should do. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but if your focus is wrong, you see what I'm saying? It's not necessarily wrong to focus on doing good, but if you're focusing on doing good too much, you're missing the point. 
There are plenty of people, not even speaking about prophecy, whose lives as Christians are to do good, like help the elderly, help the widow in her affliction, replace a shingle on a roof, rake a lawn, whatever. And that's good. That's not bad. But if that's all they live for, they make it their God. That's wrong, folks. You know what? There are plenty of people who are not Christians who do better things good than I do, like Mother Teresa. Did you know that she was doubtful about Christ? She wasn't even a Christian from her own admission. And she did better things than I could possibly do, but that doesn't mean she's going to heaven. That's my point. And that's what David is saying here. He will receive blessings from the Lord and vindication from God, his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Who told of this? The prophecies of Messiah? Who told of this? The prophecies of Messiah. I'm just checking this I was talking about. From the beginning, from the beginning, so we could know. This is from the book of Isaiah. So we could know, or beforehand, so we could say he was right. Do you follow what I'm saying here? Who is the one who gave us this information in this book we call the Bible, so that when it happens, we could say, aha, he must be different. He must be special. He must be who he says he is, which is God. So let me read that again. Isaiah 41, 26. Who told of this from the beginning? Messiah, the coming of Messiah. So we could know. Or beforehand, so we could say he was right. No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. You see who he's talking about here? The words were there. The words were given. But the prophet had to speak them. Who told of this? He said, but no one heard a word from you. I would put myself in this place before I was able to teach people, right? Before I was able to have enough understanding of things to be able to articulate it. I, Isaiah is saying this, I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good tidings. I look, but there is no one, no one among them to give counsel. Do you see what I'm saying here? How many people have been to places where you're expecting some good food, some good meat from the word of God, and you get stale bread? Right? He says, there was no one among them to give counsel, no one to give an answer, even when I asked them. If I could just sit neutrally, or you can just sit neutrally in a class like this or somewhere else and receive, that's great. But if you even go a step further, which we should, and go up and ask somebody who may be considered knowledgeable in a certain subject, and they can't tell you, it's even worse. And it says in Isaiah 41, 29, right after this, he says, see... They are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images and words are but wind and confusion. How many hear preachers like that today on TV and radio and the internet and so forth? How big are these people's churches? This is my problem. This is what the Lord says about this people. I'm now in the book of Jeremiah. About the people who look for these empty prophets who don't even ask questions or the ones who want to seek the people who have no counsel to give them. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet, so the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. So, you know the people I've named here before. I said to a few people I would not mention names anymore because some people get upset when I mention names. They do. I'm sorry. So I said I cannot ever look at some of the things that are used to teach anywhere, on the internet, wherever you are. 
I know. I've done looking, and other people I know have done looking into this, and let me tell you something. There are people who are very popular, Christian speakers and teachers and preachers and so forth. All you have to do is listen to them, and they have sheep's covering, but inside are it's a wolf. So I said I will not mention names anymore, but I won't. But you know who I'm talking about, at least a few of you, and at least some others you've seen. And what does he say here, Jeremiah 14, 11? Then the Lord of hosts said to me, Do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Instead, I will destroy them with the sword, famine, and plague. So not only will the false teachers be punished, but those who actively seek them and call them good. What does it say in Scripture? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. You see how all this ties together? And Jeremiah says, but I said, ah, sovereign Lord, this is Jeremiah. Now, keep track of what I'm saying here. Ah, sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling them, you will not see the sword or suffer famine. You don't have to worry about sin and hell. You see what I'm saying here? It says, you will not see the sword or suffer famine. That's what they're going to tell them. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. Isn't that interesting? Is that what actually happened? Is that what's going to happen here? We know that this world is reserved for fire and judgment. This world is not supposed to get any better, folks. I don't care how many people tell you we're here to change the world. We are not here as a church to change the world. We're here to save people for Christ. And by the way, if we help things get a little better for certain people in certain ways by doing things, that's our job. But some people have the thing that they think that this world is going to get better and better. You know, that's a, that's a falseness from the old Roman Catholic Church. That we're here to bring in the kingdom. That's why the Crusaders happened. That's why these things that they do in Jesus' name happen. Because they want to bring in the, make the red carpet ready, and then the king will come. No, 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 no. That's not what's going to happen. That's why we have a millennium, folks. That's why we have a tribulation, which a lot of Christians don't even believe in that. They don't know what they believe. But it's saying it right here. Jeremiah 14, verse 14. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. This is what God said. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. And yet they speak in his name. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own minds. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, yet they are saying, no sword or famine will touch this land. Those same prophets will perish by the sword and famine. Isn't that interesting? And the people they are prophesying to will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, which they themselves, these false prophets, saying aren't going to happen, aren't going to come. There will be no one to bury them or their wives, their sons or their daughters. I will pour out on them the calamity they deserve. I, and this is the, now who's the God of the Old Testament who speaks? Jesus Christ? Well, this is now from Revelation. I, who's speaking in Revelation? It's the only book in the Bible that has one thing that sets it apart from any other book. It's not a dictation by a prophet. It's not a vision given to anybody as a prophet. It is a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. He's standing there dictating. No other book can say that, correct? So when we see a quote in the book of Revelation, it's not quoting a quote from a prophet. It's Jesus himself talking. So he says, I. Well, then who's the I in Revelation 22 and 18, which is what I'm reading from? It's Jesus Christ. 
So I'd say we should listen to what he's going to say here because he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, who many Christians don't really want to see, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And what is that book describing? In the Genesis, we have God created the heavens and the earth. And in Revelation, and I, that's right. Amen. And Janet was going to say, I, sorry, I cut you off. I'm on a roll here as usual, but you're right. I don't ever do that. <laughs> yeah, but I don't have to be with her all the time. So listen, you think I would cut my wife off? See, I'm smarter than that. If Rachel says something, I go, yeah. touch my lips with a coal. So I know what you're saying. That's right. Clean me. <laughs> And then he says, which is very encouraging, he who testifies to these things, Jesus Christ says, yes, I am coming whenever? Soon. Amen. That means, that's it, final point, right? Come Lord Jesus. And that's the end of the book. That's the end of the whole Bible. How many deniers and ignorers of prophecy say, I just don't believe we're in the end times? Jesus said, I am coming soon. As a matter of fact, you can tell if you read the descriptions of how things are going to be in the end by the apostles of the New Testament, they fully expected Jesus to come back in their lifetime. Remember, the Thessalonians had to be warned because they were under the impression that it was, they were actually past that time because of some falseness that was being brought into the church at that time. So Paul tells them, no, 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 these things have to happen first. Shouldn't we know them as Christians as well? And by the way, if you know what Scripture says about these things, all of a sudden you're not going to be a post-trib, a mid-trib, a pre-ref. Where did these come from? Look at the Bible and it'll tell you. I'm sorry if I'm bursting anybody's bubble here, and I don't mean to dissuade anybody to the right to believe whatever you like. Because I believe some ridiculous things. I told well, you people in this class, I was in a, a very legalistic church when I was called. And now I know why God put me on the circuitous route toward where I am today in the full freedom of Christ. But I believe that I would go to hell if I ate pork. Well, I'm going to hell now because I'm eating shellfish too, and I loved it. I gave it up because I thought I was going to hell. So it showed that I was intent on doing what I thought God wanted me to do, but I had to learn. Well, how about no tribulation? No, not understanding what this is all about. No millennium. It's a hard battle. And I'm trying to share how hard that battle is with you, especially when you have forces riding against you that Satan is going to find and put against you to dissuade you from what the Bible clearly says, that the Holy Spirit will give you to know. You don't have to study like you're studying in school. I mean, you do have to study, but it's not like you have to figure this out yourself. Allow the Holy Spirit to do it. Who am I? I didn't even go to college. I never went to seminary. I didn't do any of these things. I didn't care about it. But I'm so grateful God gave me this to do. That's why I do it with all my might, and people may not like it. But you're not in the splash zone over here, so you're all right. <laughs> After reading all of that, how many deniers and ignorers of prophecy say, I don't believe we're in the end times. Things are pretty much the same as they are. What about those people? You see what we just read? What about those people who ask these questions? They come in, and they may say that, I really... Don't see it. I'm sorry. I just don't think we're in the end times. Things are getting incrementally worse. You've bumped into people like that. Well, you want to join me in reading this? 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 10. Here's the answer from God's word. And sorry, it doesn't mince words. It just doesn't. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. 
scoffing and following their own evil desires. Now, there people can make profit by what we just read about telling you and making you and I feel better. Give me money and I'll keep preaching to you that everything's okay. Oh, you can have your best life now. God loves you so much. He's crazy about you. He wants to give you everything. Just claim it. Right? You know any preachers like that? That you give them some money, you plant a seed, God will plant an olive tree that never fails in your yard. So they come scoffing with their own evil desires. They will say, and this is a quote, where is this coming that is promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation, unquote. Know anybody like that? But they deliberately, deliberately, deliberately? This word is a double-edged sword, right? It cuts through the marrow and cuts to the heart, doesn't it? So when it says deliberately, I'd say that it's probably correct. Nobody really does this in ignorance. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. The flood, right? By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for an ever-increasing wonderful time. Does it say that? It says they're reserved for fire, being kept in reserve for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. And here, I want you to remember this because we're going to try to get to it in five minutes or so. We have, what, ten minutes? Okay, this is the piece. I want this to ring in your ear. I want you to think about it. We're going to get to it. Well, I'm going to read something I want you, you've probably read it before, but this is very important. And I'm going to get to why in a moment. But listen to this, and I want you to remember it. So having said all of that, Peter is now saying, but do not forget this one thing, and I don't want you to forget this one thing, please. Dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Now people just read this and stop sometimes and say, well, it's literal, figurative. Really? Let's examine it and figure out what God is revealing to us about himself, number one, eternity, number two, the differential between time as we experience it here is a physical property in this time space, in these four dimensions, versus what this thing is or is not out in eternity, okay? This little sentence right here that I just read you is a very telling piece of evidence of God showing you something that we can't detect. Isn't that interesting? And it goes by just like that. It's a little sentence. A thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. So after saying that, he also says, so, in considering this is what I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some, like humans who live on a timeline, understand slowness. Now remember, everything is relative, right? And today, more than ever, we want it, and we want it now. So if a car stops in front of me and I slam on my brakes and it's my fault that I'm following a little bit too close because I'm a tailgater, I'm not really. But anyway, if I'm following too close and that guy has to stop short because he doesn't want to hit a piece of debris on the road and I slam on the brakes, I might say, boy, these brakes are slow in responding when I've only given them like, like three quarters of a second to stop that car. But if I kept the right distance from that guy and he slammed on his brakes, I'd have time to slow down. Would then I count my brakes as being too slow? No. It's all relative, isn't it? He's not slow as some understand slowness or count slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But does that mean everyone will? Because this world is reserved for 
the judgment of the ungodly. So that means not everyone will. We know that. And there are some Christians who walk around and some people who believe that everybody's saved. Really? Have you read even the littlest bit of your Bible? That's what this is all about. So then he continues and he says, but the day of the Lord. Now, whenever you see the phrase, the day of the Lord in scripture, you know what it means, right? It's not a happy day, although it can include the millennium where Jesus Christ is head and it's a happy day. But most of the time you really have to relegate it to what he's the context here. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. Ooh, sounds like major destruction. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now, you notice it does not say destroyed, because we're going to have a new heaven and new earth, which means it's going to be renewed, so it can't be destroyed. So if we already know that fact, then we know that this does not mean it's going to be destroyed. However, everything is going to be opened up so that it can be seen. Okay? So let's address the question of why such a great important thing as prophecy is not really given its due. Well, we saw it because of people who have evil desires and so forth. And we saw about God cursing the prophets who said, don't worry about this prophecy stuff. Everything's fine. You're never going to be kicked out of the land. The temple's never going to be destroyed. Don't, wor don't worry about it. Okay. Anybody know Joel Rosenberg? Okay, some of you do. He's an excellent Bible prophecy teacher. By the way, he is Jewish. And he is a Messianic Jew. And I'm telling you, and some of you know this, some of the best Christians, as far as understanding what this is all about from the Old Testament standpoint, are Jews who have God is calling. Because a Jew is like a Gentile, other than by their DNA, a Jew, right? So that's good. But other than that, they're just as much saved or lack thereof saved as a Gentile. It's just a fact. So when a Jew comes to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, do not know of anybody who could be more appreciative than that. Because their Messiah is talked about through the Old Testament, which they themselves did not believe, and all of a sudden their eyes are open. They love the word sometimes more than I do. It's a shame, but it's true. So this Joel Rosenberg, I'm going to read you something from him. His main points, this is what his main points are. Why pastors aren't teaching Bible prophecy. Now this is his, I just want to give you an idea, and others. Okay. First, many pastors don't teach prophecy because they have a lack of belief in the power of God's word. Now again, I'm saying in general, so don't say I'm mentioning anybody in particular. But I'm just teaching a class in this church. But this class I would teach anywhere, and I teach it the same way. So I'm not casting aspersions to anybody. I want you to know that. Thankfully, I have the ability to teach this class that God gave me to teach. And so just take this in general. But I want you to personally observe for yourself, wherever you go, whatever church you attend, to listen and see like we're supposed to do, discern. Okay. And there's more information here that I'm not going to get to because I want to get to a certain point. Second. Many pastors don't teach Bible prophecy because they have a lack of knowledge and or sound training in Bible prophecy. And I would say that there are many pastors who never get trained in prophecy. They just don't understand the, the efficacy of it because they never were trained in it. Third, many pastors don't teach prophecy because they have a fear of being uh, lumped in with the prophecy nuts like me, right, or like you. But here's the point. There are a lot of prophecy nuts in there, and I used Harold Camping as an example. Remember Harold Camping? He's the guy who predicted the rapture three times and he only three times failed. There was a book in 1988 called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 88. When it didn't happen, the guy came out with a book, 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 89. <laughs> so we have 2013 reasons. Uh, you know. By the way, did the Mayan calendar pan out on December 21st? No. Nah. Is there a reason that it didn't happen in 88? Uh, because the book wasn't published for 89 yet. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that something? But the, here's the point. Aren't there a lot of nuts out there who preach Christ? 
There's a lot of nuts out there who preach a gospel different from Christ, and yet they preach that. So it's not really an excuse. I'm just giving you this. The fourth is many pastors don't teach prophecy because they have a lack of understanding of the times in which we live and the increasingly close return of Christ. They don't understand about Israel. They don't, they don't give a lot of mind share to the Old Testament, especially these days. They're looking for seekers. They're looking to help people. In the, and again, they're doers a lot of times. But the problem is, is when you ignore a lot of this prophecy stuff, you don't understand the whole structure of what God has set up, and therefore you can't tell. Exactly. Perfectly said. Exactly. I'm glad I let you finish this time. <laughs> but that's right. They can't see the forest for the trees. That kind of thing. They're in the middle of it and they don't understand it. They don't understand Israel. They don't understand a lot of things. And so that, that's why. We need men and we need women. We need people ready and willing and able to rediscover the power and purpose of Bible prophecy. And that's why we're doing this here. It's not just because we're looking for the end. It's because we really want to understand Scripture. Yes. When you think of prophecy, people think of future, future events. Yes. Uh, when we're talking about Bible prophecy, most of that stuff has already happened. Mm -hmm. Yes. So for us today, the way I see it, look at it, is for us today, prophecy is in part as a way to prove the Bible, prove what's happening. That's right. And that's exactly what Satan doesn't want to happen today as we're getting closer to the end time. Yep. People to look and to prove that the Bible is true. Amen. And a lot of churches today are actually helping Satan's cause by not preaching because like, those reasons lead to confusion or it's going to cause too much conflict right. or they don't understand it. Yeah, exactly. You can, exactly. You can, there's so much prophecy to learn way before you get to the end. Amen. And that's, that's exactly your points tied yeah. together. You have to understand the background, the underpinnings of it, and see it have come true. So that, number one, you can know that whatever God said happens is going to happen. And you see, if it happened this way, it sets up a scenario for the next things to happen. Amen. And if you look at Israel as different from the church, you'll see that they have their certain function. And all of the holy days, all of the time marks, everything that God gave us as far as timing function, we're given to Israel. The church has not won. And that's why we do things like celebrate Christmas and Easter, which I'm sorry to burst your bubble, aren't Christian holidays. We made, they were made up. And they're pagan. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. What I'm saying is they don't really tell you anything important that you don't already know. Jesus died and Jesus was born. Great. But do you understand the days of unleavened bread? Do you understand Rosh Hashanah? Do you understand Pentecost? Do you understand those holy days and what they mean and how God says in the Psalms that even the stars themselves, astronomy, not astrology, but there's power in that. That's why Satan made up astrology. The whole plan of God is written and given through us, through Israel, through the days, through the covenants, through the things that he gave to them, and yet we refuse to see it. We look at the church as so important. No, we're important, but only for a certain function. We do not outweigh Israel, and Israel does not outweigh us. That's the point. I wanted to get to this thousand-year thing here. I got a lot more, but I wanted to get to that. Okay. Here's something very important. This is really what I wanted to get to today. Remember I just read you, but consider this one thing, brothers, as a thousand years is a day. I want to read it. I want you to see this capstone for today's lesson, all right? Bear with me. If you want to join me, it's Hosea chapter 5, verse 1. And I want you to understand, while we read this, what God is saying here, he's saying something about what's going to happen 
what is happening to Israel. I want you to listen and read with me and decide what he's saying. And we're going to get to this thousand-year business, okay? And I want you to see a stark revelation of prophecy that shows you in the Old Testament exactly what God's talking about when he says a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years, okay? It's Hosea chapter 5 and verse 1. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, O royal house. That means everybody who's called, no matter what capacity you are in, I want you to listen. Leader, follower, laity, whatever you are, I want you to listen. This judgment is against you. You have been a snare to a mitzpah, a net spread out on tabor. Now, I don't want to get all these terms. Just listen to what he's saying. The rebels are deep in slaughter, and I will discipline them, them all. I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution, and Israel, you are corrupt. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. You see, he's talking about Israel and their issues here. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites and even Ephraim stumble in their own sin. Judah also stumbles with them. When they go to their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him as he was withdrawn himself from them. Through this, we know what God and how he's dealing with Israel. He tells us right here. And why? They are unfaithful to the Lord. They give birth to illegitimate children. Now their new moon festivals will devour them and their fields because they're worshiping not out of God's important understanding of how these days worked, but they're worshiping because of other gods. So, he says, sound the trumpet in Gibba the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in Beth-Aven. Lead on, O Benjamin. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning. Among the tribes of Israel, I proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like a rot to the people of Judah. This is what God's saying about his own people. He's angry. He's going to rip them apart. That's what he's saying. Does anybody care? When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his own sores, when Ephraim turned to Assyria, pagans, and sent to the great king of Assyria for help and not to God. You see how blasphemous that is to him? But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces, and then I'll go away. Now, just remember what you just heard. I will tear them to pieces, and then I'm leaving. Think of that. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will go back to my place until they admit their guilt. Does this sound prophetic to you? Does it sound like how God has taken Israel, spit them out of the land, tore them apart through the countries? They were ripped apart throughout this whole world during the diaspora. Do we agree on that? They're still being ripped apart today, but they're back in their land. What's going to happen very soon? You know the noose that's tightening around their neck. And who controls everything in this world? God. So if someone rips Israel apart, it's God ripping Israel apart. Would we agree? This is what he's saying how many hundreds of years ago? Then I will go back to my place. Their Messiah came. And they did not accept him. And so what did he do? He went back to his place. And he's allowing them to be ripped apart. And they will seek my face in their misery. They will earnestly seek me. Ooh, now we're getting somewhere. Because what's going to happen in the tribulation and then into the millennium? What does Paul say in the book of Romans? 
My heart's desire, brethren, is that all of Israel might be saved. He himself was a Benjamite. Israel will be saved. God says that many times. But not yet. Why? So here's Israel's response in chapter 6. When there's going to come a point in time, do you agree that when Israel will be allowed to, the blinders will be taken off and they will be seeing Jesus? And when's that going to happen? In the millennium. Here is my point. After all of this prophecy of ripping Israel apart like a lion ripping prey and then going away and leaving them wounded to be further ripped apart, here comes the rest restoration. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 1. Come, this is now, you can see this is Israel talking and it's a conscious decision. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Now, here's my point. Listen to this carefully. They say he's torn us, but he will heal us. They're sure that he will come in and save them. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. And the third day, he will restore us that way we may live in his presence. How long have they been punished and how long has the Lord gone away? How many years? What's the prophesied time for the church age? 2,000 years. How long is the millennium? A thousand years. For two days. For 2,000 years, he has left us alone. After two days, he will revive us. Are they revived right now? They are back in their land. They have a, a, a language which was a dead language up until 1921, Hebrew. They have a state. They have a nation. It is Israel. They have a place and a language, and they are going to rebuild the temples. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, which is the thousand-year millennium, he will restore us that we may then live in his presence. And that's the end of the lesson for today. Is that prophecy enough for you? Do you see how I said to remember something that most people gloss over in the New Testament? A thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. So now what we've learned here, not just that that's true, we've seen an example of it, which I'm sure Peter was drawing on, at least this, it says it other times, but we know God's feeling about time. You see, it's not that time has no consideration to God or God has no consideration of time. It's just that because it's an abstract that's a physical property, he views it very differently. And it's not just because he has no beginning and no end. He looks at it. He knows it's already done. The whole timeline is as if it's present to him. That's why there's eternity. Because time marches on from beginning to end here. That's why we're in time. When you have eternity, it's like it's static. It never moves. Yes? Okay. Thank you. That's what I wanted to show you today. So we're going to get more into some, some prophecies about Jesus Christ next week, and we're going to get more into some more detail about how... I'm going to show you some things next week about prophecy in the days of Abraham. Remember when he had his own little army? It was up for a big army. He had over 300 men. And there were four kings that he had to battle. I want to show you next week how those four kings wound up being the progenitors of the world powers in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And I want to show you how the beginning of that, which most people don't even know the stories or care about them, how if you understand that, you can see the plan of God roll out in the Gentile ruling powers forward when he makes the time mark in the book of Daniel about what this is and then finishes it up in the book of Revelation when Mystery Babylon is destroyed and it all started from Nimrod after the flood. Right? That's what I'm going to show you next week. 
Have a great, wonderful, sane week.